Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. My guest, we have to play this. An absolute institution. I can't believe it. I'm pinching myself all over now as we go to the line to speak to Mr. Mike Reed. Good evening. Good evening. He should be in an institution, you meant to say. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. You, you see, you picked up on it, but it's the first time I've ever been totally on time, 9.30, because I'm in presence of Radio Royalty here. Oh, uh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, you sound as though you're enjoying yourself there, which is great. Well, I'm pretend. I am. I'm enjoying myself. I'm enjoying myself now. An hour ago, might have been a bit, little bit different, but uh, I'm enjoying myself now. Well, listen, Mike, thank you so much indeed for coming on the show tonight. I, I don't think you realise how much on this station we adore you, sir. You are the pinnacle of radio. Uh, well, again, I'm not too sure about that. Very flattering, but uh, I'm sure radio has lots of pinnacles. But, uh, yeah, we all enjoy it, which is great fun. So, listen, I want to go back to start with, because there's questions I want to ask you, and, of course, our audience will be very interested. What, for me, I was kind of called a little bit strange at the age of eight when I was talking into a line prop to myself. I always knew that I wanted to do radio. How did you start? When did you decide, and you said, I want to play music? When did you decide this? Well, I've always loved music. I mean, well, I did sort of dancing classes and singing at home because... Uh, at home, uh, one of our rooms, uh, the, the dancing class was held there, and it was uh, Julie Andrews' mum, Auntie Barbara, and Julie Andrews' auntie, Auntie Joan, who uh, did the dancing and the, the piano and what have you. So, because I lived there, I was thrust into it. So, uh, I had music thrust on me from an early age, but I always loved songs. I remember so many songs on the radio that I thought, oh, that's magical. How does how do people write those songs? So. I think I love the, the songwriting aspect, the structure of songs, you know, the magic of yeah. how songs were written. So uh, I'd always loved music, and I never really intended to go into radio. I mean, I, I, I started writing songs as a teenager and poetry and wrote, the, you know, songs at college and did a musical and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, it, it, was, it was thrust upon me, really, because I played quite a lot of cricket. And a guy called Neil from French Blake with two small Fs. Um, uh, called me in one day and I played cricket with him and he said, I'm, I'm starting a radio station and I want you on the station. And I said, well, doing what? What do you mean playing and singing? He said, no, no, broadcasting. Wow. I said, well, it's not what I do. He said, it is now. And I said, well, why do you want me on the station? You haven't auditioned me. And he said, three reasons. One, you're very English. Two, you're marginally eccentric. And three, you're a bloody good opening bowler. And so that's how I got <laughs> in, really. And I said, what's the bowler going to do? He said, I'm starting a cricket team and you're opening the bowling. So that oh. was how I got in. I never auditioned. I just went on and did a program. And that was it. So and Steve you... Wright started at the same time. So uh, we became Reed and Wright, the wireless people, because our names just worked together. And, uh, yeah, we worked together very well, Steve and myself. So when you when you started your first radio job going like, what, what area was you broadcasting in? What, what? Sorry, say again? What area did you broadcast in to start with? Oh, was it Thames Valley. It was okay. the Thames Valley area, yeah. Okay, so when you first started to, you know, uh, tread the boards, go live, start your show, um, were, you, were you kind of frightened the first time knowing that you were on this, this new radio show? Did it kind of affect you to start with, or did you kind of soak up the pressure and deliver a first good show? 
I couldn't tell you whether the show was good or not. That would only be for the listeners to judge. But, right. uh, but we certainly enjoyed it. We were we were innovative. Steve and myself were very different because uh, we we hadn't come from anywhere else. And and and, and I think Neil fired us probably once a week at least and said, <laughs> you know, he said, you boys are amateurs. Listen to the professionals and see how it's done. And we thought, actually, they're all a bit boring. The professionals, they're nice yeah, guys, yeah, but yeah. it's a bit old fashioned. It's like. Yeah, and a very good afternoon to you. It's ten past three in the afternoon. We did that. <laughs> yes, yes. Old hat. So <laughs> we 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 did crazy things like we got the engineers to put wires right out uh, onto the road, and they will come in and say, "What do you do while sitting uh, on the curb in the street?" And we said, "Well, we're just saying, you know, cars coming past. You know, Who, if you're listening to us, we can believe we were on the radio." So we just thought we'd go out there and. You know, we thought, yeah, they're, they're listening to us. They actually are in the cars. We couldn't believe we were on the radio. In fact, we had a transistor in, in, outside the studio. And we used to take it in turns to go out to listen to the transistor. And say, yeah, we really are on the radio. <laughs> we couldn't believe it. We go out and check that we were. It was hilarious. So, just, you, you know, to those are some funny stories. I, I like the part about being professional. It just sounds a bit glum same professional um when did you when did you kind of make the transition and how did radio one come about because obviously you know um you joined radio one i think back in 1978 um how how did that come about like transition from learning you, you tried to get onto radio one or did you have to audition what happened uh well i went via radio luxembourg radio um, luxembourg yeah I, so i I got a lot of calls for... Sorry, say again? Yeah, how long was you on Radio Luxembourg for, uh, for before you made the bounce to Radio 1? Well, I was only there for about 10 months. I mean, I got the Radio Luxembourg gig out of about 2,000 people. Right. Um, they asked me to send a tape in, and I didn't have one, and I was really, really busy, and I said, I don't have time to send a tape in. And they said, we'll come up and do a live audition. So I went up to Luxembourg HQ in London, did an audition, and they said that we've got about 2,000 tapes to listen to. We'll call you in a few weeks. And the following day, I got the call, uh, and they said, we'd like you to you know, go out to Luxembourg, start broadcasting. Wow. So I went out there, walked in the studio, and there's Barry Aldis, who I'd listened to as a kid under the day clothes. Yeah. And I thought, wow, Barry Aldis of Top 40 fame. And he said, ah, is our new boy, Mike Reed, come in. And then he left me to it. And I'm in charge of this, like, you know, Boeing 747 flight deck. And I thought, I don't know what to do. Nobody told me what to do. There's a German engineer who didn't speak much English, so I had to sort of learn the ropes just by myself, really. Um, I was there for 10 months and then got a call from Radio 1, came over, and I was very lucky, you know, I seemed to be at the front of the queue when the door opened, so uh, in I went. So you go on to Radio 1. Radio 1, of course, as we know, um, back, in, back in the day itself, was the biggest radio station in the United Kingdom, so now you're kind of going to start going across the United Kingdom. What was your first slot on Radio 1, and did it differ from what you'd done before? Was it a bit more kind of, you had to be a bit more PC or kind of regulated in what you could do? How did it work from the transition from Luxembourg into 1? Well, I think it was a pretty simple transition. We were playing good music at Luxembourg. It wasn't so heavily playlisted then, of course. Uh, it really wasn't like that. You'd sit with your producer... And, and pick music, and uh, and you go, yeah, let's play that, yeah, let's play this. So, uh, yeah, well, it wasn't heavily playlisted, so it wasn't a big transition. I mean, at Radio 1, they, they I remember Derek Chinnery, the controller, phoned my agent. He said, does Mike want this job? And he said, yeah. He said, well, does he have independent means? He said, I don't think so. 
He said he has a rather dilettante approach to it, as if he's, you know, not bothered whether he takes it or not. He said, no, no, he does want it. That's just his style. And he said, oh, okay, most people come in here crawling over broken glass to get in. He didn't. So, uh, but anyway, I, I, I did it, and it was, uh, it was great. Yeah, the music was, uh, was good, and we, we enjoyed it. And, I mean, yeah, the same freedom as Radio Luxembourg, really, at the time. Well, you must, you must have had your favourites, of course, which I'm hoping you'll mention, are your favourites, the colleagues that you work with on Radio 1 that you got on very well with. Um, because there always seems to be that, even with this station, we seem to have, you know, pockets of people that we kind of bounce off, maybe we like the same kind of music. Who was, your, who was the one that you listened out for when you went to Radio 1? Who was you listening to, apart from, obviously, your own show? Well, you'd listen to all the other shows because you're the new boy and, uh, you know, uh, a out of courtesy and B because you like the music, C because you wanted to hear what new stuff was being yeah. played. So um, it's a bit like any workplace, really. You you gravitate socially towards some people uh, and other people a bit ships in the night simply because of the times of day you're on. Uh, you probably go, hi there, hi, and, and then you're off again. You know, there's no situation where you're all sitting around anywhere sort of having a chin wag except on the weeks away. So it, it, it was probably dictated you know, by geography and, and timing and stuff like that rather than anything else. But, uh, yeah, I mean, by, by and large, you know, we all got on pretty well. Uh, everyone was, was very different and, uh, uh, you know, and everyone w- was nice in their own way, really. I mean, you know, uh, John Peel obviously was very individual and and made a point of picking sort of maverick tracks and championing new bands. But, uh, but John was, you know, he, he was very funny. I remember going for lunch one day with, uh, Paul Gambaccini and Peter Powell and uh, Paul was on the outside of the curve, Peter was in the middle, I was on the inside and John Peel's coming the other way walking out to Broadcasting House and he just said, yeah, hello Peter, hello Paul hello Mary um, so he had a great sense of humour and uh, I went to open a fate once and I saw this figure in the distance and I thought, it was like John and I went over and I said, what are you doing? he said, oh just just, just, uh, just pass in you know, he'd actually come to support me but didn't like to say he had so he said oh i was just a just sort of fate and i thought i'd pop in uh, yeah yeah so he was very supportive um as most of the guys were you know i think when somebody new joins uh everyone's very supportive and you know welcomes them into the team so what was the support like then after you'd been there a short while and you took over the cupboard which is the cupboard it makes you the numero uno in my eyes you took over the radio one breakfast show were people support because you hadn't been with the station that long before you got the Radio One Breakfast Show, which is kind of the pinnacle of the day schedule. Yeah, I, I started by doing a, a Saturday night program from Manchester. Yeah, although it was, it was national, obviously, but it was from Manchester. And uh, then uh, after a short while, I started doing the program before John in the evening. So I did the program before John Peel, so I did a lot of sessions for bands and things like that, which I love. And a lot of people still come up and say, "Oh, no, it's my favourite program of yours, that program." Uh, and I, I loved it. It was it was great great show to do. And, um, and then yeah, I got the breakfast show in January '81. I think I I they had a week away, and DLT was doing the breakfast show. Got a really bad cold, and I got a phone call one night in the studio saying, "Look, can you drive up after your program? Um, because we want you to do the breakfast show for the rest of the week from here." Because you know Dave's ill, and I said, "Yeah, okay." So I had a word with Peely and left and I drove into an unlit hole in the road where some workmen hadn't left lights and so pretty much wrecked the car and I phoned the studio and I said to John I'm going to come back and I have to get a taxi he said, he said oh, don't worry so I'll, 
I'll drive you up when I finished at 12 o'clock. So John very kindly drove me all the way up to Birmingham. And uh, then I did the breakfast show after about two hours sleep. And then a couple of months later, they, they gave it to me. Well, I remember listening to your radio on breakfast show um, through that period. And I was born in 1972. So it was about right for me. And something, of course, important around that time, of course, because times changed decade to decade. Uh, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, but obviously Frankie Goes to Hollywood at the time had a hit relax. And I agree with what happened during the course of that period because I think with some of the lyrics and especially the noises in that track for somebody who was only been about what 11 12 years old um I would have thought that that wasn't BBC to play why why did you decide halfway through to to interrupt the track and not play it um you'd imagine that there were about a thousand people in the studio because everyone has a different interpretation the thing was we repeated the chart on a Wednesday morning and there was very little time left. We had about four songs left to play, and yeah. Adrian John came in, and, yeah. and he said, are you going to fit all these in before 9 o'clock? And I said, I don't know. And he pointed to the back, and it was, the back had, it was written, it said something straight on there, and I said, oh, that's a bit tacky, isn't it? And he said, yeah, it is a bit. Subsequently, I spoke to Trevor Horn a couple of years ago, and he said, we didn't know they'd done that, he said at the time. Yeah. And uh, and it was it was and I said oh, well if I'm going to drop something I'll drop that one it was as simple as that it wasn't it wasn't anything it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the BBC banned it not me I just said oh they haven't got time to play that one anyway it's got to be tacky on the back or something like that but anyway uh, they banned it really because of the video the uh, the video was uh, was very very explicit yes. and had things in they yes. said. They said, yes. we, you're the face of children's TV. We can't be anywhere near this. Radio 1 uh, did it because my producer came back. He got home and found his two young daughters yes. uh, rewinding and rewinding the explicit bits. And he came and he said, oh, have you seen that? And uh, so, yes, yeah, so the BBC really banned it because uh, of the video. I mean, the, the, the track was fine. And then years later, I was down at Cannes at the film festival. And this guy leant across the table on the beach. And he said, I think we have something in common. He said, I was the director for the for the Frankie goes to the Hollywood video. Yeah. He said, but I was told to make it over the top yeah. just for the tube. And of course, as soon as they got it, yep. Paul Morley, uh, their guy, went to Top of the Pops, Children's TV with it, just to shock. So it had the desired effect, but it didn't go from nowhere to number one. It was already probably heading to number one. Yeah. But um, yeah. a great track. And I did the voiceover for their album and stuff like that. So it was no Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you cleared that up because you, you just spoke about, uh, you know, the face of children's TV. So why all this is going on at Radio 1? Was that the time you was also doing Saturday Superstore? Uh, yeah, we did it sort of through until 87-ish or something like that, that sort of period, yeah. Well, I love Saturday yeah. Superstore, and of course, it was a program that went out on a Saturday morning with the lovely Sarah Green. What what was it? What was it like doing television? Because had you started doing Top of the Pops as well around the same time? Yeah, Top of the Pops, Pop Quiz, and Saturday Superstore. I'd done a series for ITV when I was at Luxembourg called Pop Quest, okay, uh, which is a national series, which is like a a, a pop quiz for the school kids. Uh, with guests on like Brian May and Jack Good and John wow, Peel and people wow. like that we had on as guests. So, um, yes, I'd already done the you know, uh, TV series. Uh, but, yeah, it was great. I loved it. I mean, I love TV. It's a different uh, a different discipline to radio. Radio is basically you, not so much now because you've got teams of people, but yes. it was just you in the studio, uh, whereas TV, you're only the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole lot going on behind you. So I noticed like there was so much going on all at the same time. You're doing pop quiz, you're doing Saturday Superstore, you're doing your Radio One stuff. How 
was it kind of the passion just to kind of do all... You weren't bothered about all this workload you got at the time. Um, you just enjoyed doing the TV. Which one do you, do you prefer, television or radio? Which is which is your first love? Like apples and oranges, you know, you like them both. They're both yeah. good fruits, both good for you. So, yeah, there's, there's no comparison. They're just different disciplines, different uh, different ways of working. So with TV, <clears throat> you know, you're working with a team of people. You have to be aware uh, of timings. If there's the length of a show... And they go, and the floor manager's counting you down. He's got 15, 10, blah, blah. And you've got to wind up, thank the person very much, come out of it, go into something, uh, and then wait, come out of that, go into something else. So, uh, yeah, this it's more, more mathematical, I think, than radio, where you could just cruise along and blow with the wind. And if you think, well, I'll just drop that record or I'll cut this one short. Uh, but with TV, it, it, it is, you know, even though it appears casual, I mean, Saturday morning it was, it was three and a quarter hours live. Yes. I think it was the longest live show in the world. Um, but even so, even with three and a quarter hours, it, 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 it still had, you know, signposts to hit, points to hit, because you had to get everybody in. Well, it's, it's your, it's your programme. I mean, I'm not being disrespectful to Noel Edmonds, because I, I love Noel Edmonds. He's a genius. But Saturday Superstore gave you a lot more than what Swap Shop did. There was a lot, kind of how we see how, how we see Saturday mornings since. I mean, I know they've disappeared quite a lot now. But even up to uh, Anton Deck in the morning and going live, you were the one of the main people that made these shows transition to a new children's audience moving forward. I think that's where I sit with it. Yeah, I mean, we, we you know we enjoyed it. We all worked as a team. Keith Chegrin was on there as oh, well. Of Keith. Yeah. And, um, uh, and Sarah, so uh, we had a lot of laughs. We all got on well, and it was it was just like having your mates around on a Saturday morning. We said, "Who's in this morning?" Oh, Culture Club are coming in, and Joanna coming in. Oh, wow. fine, fine. Wow. And uh, wow. you know, Paul Daniels or whoever it was, or the English National Ballet. Okay, or you know, all sorts of people. And we just had, you know, anybody, the political leaders, we had the Prime Minister, and you know, everybody. So it varied so much, but. You know, it was a program, really. You no know, kids' programs now are basically watched by kids. Yes. But then they were watched by adults as well. Yeah. yeah. You know, you yeah. have someone like McCartney came in. He go, oh yeah, you know, we watch on a Saturday morning. You know, so adults watched it as well, and it was it was great for uh, for artists. If I had found a band that was playing them on Radio One, they'd say, well, who's around? Who should we get in? I said, well, I quite like that. And oh yeah, okay. And so they get exposed to 14 million people on the Radio 1 Breakfast yeah, Show yeah. and then 10 million people on Saturday morning and then probably then to 50 or 16 million on top of the pop. So, you know, if your record took off, if only a small percentage bought it, you go big hit record. So can I ask you, can I ask you, of course, um, what would have, you know, if you look back over the whole lot of, uh, you can't put your own in, by the way, what would have been the Saturday show if you could have watched that you secretly wanted to watch. You can't put your own in there because yours is fantastic, but maybe pick from Swap Shop, Tease Was, um, the Anton Deck Morning Shows. Wh- which one would you have liked to have watched now as a child? Um, I watched quite a few. I watched Saturday Scene yeah. with um, with Sally James. I remember watching that. Um, a bit of Tease Was. Probably a mixture of quite a few of them, really. Bits of Swap Shop, uh, which I, I used to watch. I think you could only... Uh, judge the ones you watch. There were a lot that I didn't see, so probably some of those. And, and I guess you, when you're looking at them, you see how it's done. So yeah. suddenly you, you're watching it at home one minute, and the next minute you're there, you know, on the other side of the coin doing the program. So 
that, that's that's very odd but I guess you sort of learn how to do it and uh, and just you just got to take it in your stride you've got to treat it you know for, for what it is I mean it, it's it's a job you've got to get on with it but it's a wonderful job and it's great fun well it always um, it but, always it always seems to me it always seems to me and I've been having a look at a few of your classic clips over the last couple of days it seems to me that you really, really well by the body language comes across that you really loved presenting top of the pops when you had the opportunity to do that is that true of course, yeah. I mean, we all love doing it. Um, before I joined Radio One, <coughs> excuse me, I was um, in a band, and we had, um, uh, you know, I used to play a lot anyway, and we we got top of the box. And I was in the musicians' union, so Robin Nash, the producer, said, "You know, sorry, son, you're not in the musicians' union." I didn't even think about it. I sat in the dressing room, holding my head in my hands, and I thought, my one chance to go on top of the box, and. I can't go on. I've learned my one chance, not knowing that I'd start doing it at the end of 78 and do the last one in 2006. Uh, but it was great fun. And, and the fun thing was they only let you know like a week before, a few days before, so can you do next week? Yeah. And then you'd say, who's on? That was the big thing. Who's on? Yeah. Were they some of your mates, some of the bands you knew, some of the bands you've been championing? Uh, that was always great. You know, what's the lineup? And then, you know, if there were some mates on, you say, oh, let's all go out and have a drink afterwards. So it was terrific fun. And you did it as live in, in the time, but you had a sort of link of eight or nine seconds in which to back announce one group, indelibly stamp your personality on the public and introduce another one. But you did that well. You did that well. <laughs> you, you really yeah, I mean, I, we enjoyed it. I mean, but it was, uh, it, it was pretty fast and you had to decide, you know, when there were two of you, roughly what you were going to do because you couldn't just... Just say, say, okay, I'll, I'll intro it, you outro it, and then in the middle we'll talk about your tie or whatever it is, you know, something, because it had to be fairly tight. And when you do the countdown, we had Ian McLean, who was the floor manager. Yeah. So he'd get the stuff from upstairs, so you weren't really watching anything. He'd tap you on the shoulder, so it'd be like, it'd be like, tap, and at number 30, it's so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. Tap, and at 29, it's so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. So you'd do that, and then sometimes he'd, you know, He'd be stupid and clip you around the ear instead of uh, tapping you on the shoulder. So yeah, it was it, that. That's how we did the rundown, and uh, and the show, of course, it comes from a studio that's much smaller than you imagine it to be. Yeah. Because they have like six stages and gantries all around the place, so they're moving around, so it looks much bigger. Well, you know, we talk about. I've got. I've got to be honest now, and uh, this is where I'm jealous of you. This is where I'm very jealous of you, of course, because not only have you had a fantastic career, not only are you a fantastic radio presenter, but you got to present, and I'm very jealous, and it's going to hurt me to say this, the Radio on Roadshow. And to be able to walk out with those pips at 11 o'clock to that kind of noise, um, I could only ever dream of even getting a quarter of that. Or what was it like, the radio, really, what was it like, the Radio on Roadshow, for you when you did your weeks away from the studio? Loved it. I loved it. I remember my mother phoning me and saying, you love it, don't you? Leave yeah. down on the car, tennis racket and guitar in the back, getting paid too much, traveling from town to town and <laughs> showing off. I said, yeah, actually, now you can't mention it. Um, <laughs> but no, it was, it was fun. I spent most of the time, uh, I spent most of the money uh, winding up Smiley Miley or hiring helicopters <laughs> or submarines or something. So, But you, you've always got to remember you know, when you're there and having fun on a road show and you've got, yeah. bizarrely, something like, you know, 15, 20, sometimes 25,000 people 
watching a radio show. Yes. Um, but you've got to remember there are people at home. And if people are just screaming and shouting and laughing on the radio, it's frustrating because at home you feel excluded. So if you're doing something on Smiley Miley, you've got to sort of explain what, it's, what it is, tee it up, play a record, do the hit, play a record, then the denouement, where yeah. you go, oh, yeah. God, I didn't see it coming. How did you organize that? So the people at home are included as well. Uh, but that's very important. You know, all the time at the BBC, I thought I was just having fun, having a good laugh. Yeah. But when you leave, you realize how much you've learned yes. uh, about broadcasting and what to do, when to do it, how to handle it. And, yes. uh, you, you learn more than you think. But the road shows, great fun. I mean, you know, stunt after stunt after stunt. Uh, and we we thoroughly enjoyed it. And PC things you couldn't do now. When I was at Fourth Call, we had David Essex on the next day, and I thought, well, I haven't got anything lined up. And I phoned a local like Harley Davidson or a motorbike dealer yeah. and said, could I borrow a big bike? Because David's a bike man. Yeah, of course. Phoned the Coast Guard, got, got six massive flares. Right. We cleared the path through the crowd. No security guys. Some planks running up onto the stage. We came roaring through the crowd on this bike. Yeah. Me letting off the, the Coast Guard's flares. Yeah. The bike, with neither, neither of us wearing helmets, straight through the crowd, up on the planks and up onto the stage. Now, these days... Everything is it's like, what's wrong with this picture? Everything is wrong with this picture these days. <laughs> we simply wouldn't be allowed to do it. You know, no security in the crowd, no insurance, no crash helmets, Coast Guard flares going off. I mean, the, the David's insurance. Oh, I mean, now it would be horrendous. Good old days, though. Good old seat. You can't knock the good old days, you know. I think it's. I think yeah. we've become a little bit too much, uh, too much insurance friendly. And I think you have to listening to that that you've just said there. That would have been amazing. How did you? How did you get from? Because I mean, obviously, you did the road show for a week. Um, did you ever do it for two weeks? Kind of have a break and come back and finish, close the road show season off, or was it just a week? Yeah, no. I, some, I think on occasion I did two weeks, and then I started doing some Sundays as well that they started experimenting with. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I said, I'll do the whole lot if you want. I'll do seven or eight weeks quite happily, <laughs> you know, just just keep me going because I, I, I tend to wear out producers. You know, you, I'd see a producer sitting there with his head in his hands. He's saying, is it Friday yet? Is it Friday? You know, and he said, please don't even tell me what the flock of sheep are for. I don't want to know. Really? I don't want to know. Um, and they get exasperated with all the stuff you're doing. You know, it's hilarious. So you you used to come off off air, as we all remember, twelve thirty before Newsbeat used to come on. So you'd be in one location and then doing another one the following day. So you know, we know you had to travel, but did you kind of was it up to the guys to get everything packed away and set up for the following day? Were you just in a fast car and off to the next next resort? How did that work? Yeah, that's right. You just got in your car. Yeah, I mean, I drove myself. Really, um, and follow the roadshow vehicles. We generally, you know, the the plan was you do the show, you sign autographs afterwards, sign all the hats yeah. and what have you. Yeah. Uh, then you probably go and have tea, and then we'd all leave, go on to the next place. Uh, you know, have a scrub, and then have supper, get the guitars out, have a sing song, and then wow. early in the morning the riggers would be down there doing it all over again. And when you got to each place, then that that was when you did the press. You got to the hotel. And you had to do all the local papers or TV or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, so we did that. So it was uh, it, it was pretty much formatted. It was you know the riggers set it up, bang, you did the show, you signed everything, you had some tea, you moved on. Then you did the press at the next place, 
uh, then you have supper, and then you start it again. Well, you haven't got to, you haven't got to answer this, but I'm going to ask you the question because this is all off the cuff tonight, ladies and gentlemen. I've got nothing written down. If you're just tuning in, it's two minutes to ten. We're live with the legend that is Mr. Mike Reed on Second City Radio. Uh, the question I want to ask you is this: um, Why all this was going on great with Radio One? Because Radio One was the station. There was nothing else really to listen to. Uh, a few a few independent stations started to come on uh, online, you know, using uh, different transmitters, different channels. Pirate Radio Station was big in the '80s as well, even though it'd been around, you know, a couple of decades before. Uh, it was becoming a bit more intense. And then Matthew Bannister come and joined Radio 1, and all of a sudden uh, there was DJs leaving left, right and centre. Uh, what what did you think about that, bringing a new broom in, and literally uh, this Matthew Bannister coming in saying, well, you know, we've got we've to gotta change the guard, we've got to get people out. I thought it was really, me personally, from what I, I know about it, I thought it was badly done. What, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I wasn't there, of course. I'd gone yeah, about yeah. a year before. But obviously, uh, see, these were, see, these were some of the people that you've worked with. Um, so I'm, I'm asking you kind of on your basis, what did you think about what went on during that period? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a crazy way of doing it because if you want to make change, the answer is in any business, yeah. is that you try and do it subtly, and quite often people don't notice. You know, if you say, right, I think we should change. You know, if you do it gradually, it's like, you know, living in a house with somebody, you don't watch them, they grow up, and you think, hey, I didn't notice you growing up. So it's a bit of that. You know, you say, you phase somebody out, they go, oh, so and so, and they gradually phase someone else out. You do it as a gradual process. The blood on the carpet scenario was a bit daft. It's like making a great announcement, you know. It's like trying to prove something, you know, which which is a bit stupid. It wasn't a very good way of doing it. It wasn't a very professional way of handling it, I don't think. Well, I think I think during the course of that period, they they lost something like uh, ten million people uh, quite quickly. Um, I mean, obviously, you've moved on from there because you've done you've done so many different kinds of genre of music. Different radio stations have been on. Why did you Why did you get out of Radio One? What was the reason that you said, right, you know, time's up, or I want to go and do something? How did that come about when you said, well, that's enough for me, Radio One. I want to move on. Uh, I was approached by Richard Park, who was at Capital. Okay, uh, it was presumed that Capital were going to get the, na- the first national commercial station. Right. Uh, it didn't work out that way because they decided to invest, I think, in, you know, sort of cafes, and they, they put their money in a different area. But the word was that they were going to get the national station. And I was taken out for lunch a couple of times and said, we'd like you to come and do the breakfast show on probably the new national station. Yeah. I said, great, okay. And uh, so that was it, but... When I got there, that didn't happen, and I ended up doing the afternoon show. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I sort of went went for one reason, and that didn't happen. So I missed the blood on the carpet at Radio 1, and uh, I was at Capital. So, so when you move on to Capital, um, you've, you've done uh, programmes like Mike Reed's Collection. Um, you've done. You've, he says that you know that you've done some jazz and stuff like that before, as I remember. Uh, you've you've been on different radio station, Magic Jazz FM. Is this kind of to keep yourself fresh, or just look at the way different different stations work their model? I don't know. You tell me. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's just working really. Um, <clears throat> you know, if, if you're uh, not doing something, or you're doing less than you want to, and somebody says, "Will you come and do this?" You look at it and then make a decision whether you want to do it or not. Um, <clears throat> I think Jazz FM was one of the strangest because I didn't know a lot of the artists, and yeah, I know jazz artists, but it was sort of a sort of slightly left-field jazzy stuff. But nevertheless, it was fine. It was presenting, and it's, um, 
uh, a different uh, different type of comfort zone, I guess. Um, Classic FM, I loved. I, I really enjoyed that during the breakfast show on there for a couple of years. Uh, why, that was, that was why, 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 what, because Classic FM would have been completely away from what you're used to playing on the radio. Why, why, why Classic FM? What was that about? Uh, they asked me, Michael Bucked, who was there, yeah. uh, called me up and said, you know, would you like to come in? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and I like classical music anyway. I don't profess to be, you know, have a massive in-depth knowledge, but, uh, you know, as much as the, the, the uh, any other layman. Um, so I said, yeah, this is, we've done um, a test with our, our listeners, and you test very high. And I said, well, okay. Um, and they said, and we, we don't want it to be like ploddy and, oh, hello, this is Classic FM. We want it to be <coughs> quite modern. Um, so, yeah, I did it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. it was great fun. Really, really enjoyed it and learned a lot as well. Well, see, this 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 is this is the thing. This is why you've done so so much stuff. Of course, we've got people pinging me all sorts of stuff. I'll try and get to some of that shortly. I want to talk about something I think you're very very um, loving of, which is your pop quiz. So, so how did pop quiz come about? And and it, I understand that it's still kind of going strong in some format today. Uh, yeah, I was at a TV centre and I was approached by Mike Appleton. He used to do Grey Whistle Test. And he said, we've got a program, we're going to do a pilot, so I think it'd really suit you. <coughs> Excuse me. He said, so um, we'd like you to come along and, and have a NASA. Uh, so I did, and we did the pilot for Pop Quiz, and then they came back and said, yeah, we really think it's going to work. Uh, would you like to do it? And I said, yeah, I would. Terrific. So I did it. We, we got 10 million people on a Saturday night, what is it, 6 half or 6, whatever it was. But, but people that didn't normally do panel games, you know what I mean? Uh, we had, you know, Duran versus Spandau. We had Morrissey on there. We had George Michael on there. We had members of Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, Queen, uh, Thin Lizzy, you know, Bob Gilnock, Bajor. I mean, you know, people that don't do panel games. So it was great fun. We, we had lots and lots of fun with it. And it was, I think, good for the listener because they saw people uh, on there in a way they wouldn't or They'd normally either see them performing or in an interview situation. So to see them very relaxed on pop quiz was wonderful. Well, what we're going to do, um, it's coming up to five past ten. Uh, if you just tune in, we're live with Mike Reed, of course. Mike, there's so many people trying to get through um, with questions, of course, because we have live chat rooms here. Uh, what we're going to do is I'm just going to uh, take a, a little break for five minutes. We're going to play the Eagles in Hotel California, give Mike a chance to have a glass of water because he's got a bit of a frog in the throat. And uh, we'll, we'll be back, of course. We're going to be talking uh, to Mike about I'm a celebrity. I'm very excited to talk to you about that because I know you brought a lot of things to that jungle and some things that weren't shown. Am I right? Mike? Absolutely. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about him popping up in Bow Selector. We're going to talk about loads of stuff when we come back. Uh, so Mike, we're going to give you a little five minute break just to uh, grab yourself a glass of water and we're going to play the Eagles and Hotel California. This is Chris Primetime, Second City Radio with the legend that is Mr. Mike Reed.
said, we are all just prisoners here of our own device. And in the master's chambers, they gathered for the feast. They stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. Of course, it is the Eagles and Hotel California from Second City Radio. I've got the excuse to play this again one more time. Classic. So it's 11 minutes past 10 o'clock. Of course, my very, very special guest is the ultimate presenter on the planet, Mr. Mike Reed. You're loving this, aren't you, tonight? Absolutely. Good stuff. Uh, I want to talk about now something that I watched you in, which was I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. First of all, how was you asked to, to appear on it, and why did you appear on it? Um, the, well, they, they pay pretty well. You make a lot of money for your charity. Uh, I made six figures for my charity, uh, which is great. I've never been to Australia. First-class flights out there, and stay in the six-star Versace Hotel, and have a great time in the jungle, uh, playing Boy Scouts. What is not to like about that, Chris? Hey, well, the lack of food, starters. Uh, well, that's fine. I could do with losing half a stone anyway, so that was fine by me. Did you? Um, did you? Did you see how it was? You, did, no, it was. It was great fun. You know, you you make a lot of mates. I mean, the only person I knew uh, properly from the camp was was Johnny Rotten, was John Lydon before we went in. Uh, so I knew John, um, but. Uh, I became very friendly with Peter Andre and Charlie Brockett, and went to both their weddings when we came out of the wow. uh, out of the jungle. Uh, but it was, it was great fun, you know. You, they, I think they they didn't that year particularly want Boy Scouts. They want storylines then, right? And it was you know Peter Andre and Jordan in the same hammock it was uh. a great storyline. 
you know, me making a backgammon set so that Charlie and myself and Peter could play backgammon. Uh, not quite so interesting. And, um, and writing, I sort of rewrote Oliver. Uh, because you're looking for something to do. And they said, come on, you can, you can entertain us. So I, I rewrote Oliver with um, Razor Rudder called 19 Stone of Premiership <laughs> Footballer as Little Oliver. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Crockett as the top and the big ass what takes Oliver in. I had um, Peter Andre as Bill Sykes <laughs> with Jordan on a lead as Bullseye the <laughs> Dog. Yeah, and, they, and they didn't show that. that. That was TV gold. And then they said, oh, Johnny won't take part. He won't do it. And I said, Johnny, you're Fagan. And he said, all right, I'll go and find something then, shall I? And he he came back with what he thought was right for Fagan, a bit of a beard and stuff like that. And it was, when I came out, all the press said, you know, we should see this. It's fantastic. But they were sort of censoring on, you know, Jordan telling us about the size of Peter Andre's uh, manhood and yes. stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, it, was, uh, it, it was interesting. But it's a bit of fun. I mean, really, it's not... You know, it's not life-changing. It's just a bit of fun, a bit of a lark. And, and the, the people were in it were great. We had we had a lot of fun. And, you know, but they didn't show things. You know, you're quite right. I mean, Johnny and myself sat down at one point. We were talking about the romantic poets, about uh, Shelley Keats and Byron yeah. for about half an hour. And when we came out, he said, he said, can you believe they didn't show that? He said, Byron Keats and Shelley being discussed by the punk and the DJ, and they didn't even show it. You know, uh, but that that would have been an interesting bit of TV. But they sort of tend to go for the mainstream. I mean, people said, "Oh, can we do a call my bluff?" So I wrote twenty words that I thought people probably wouldn't know yeah. with the right definition or two wrong definitions, two plausible definitions. And they called me into the hut and said, "Oh, look, you know, you know, can, can you stop being the, the good guy and the Boy Scout and organising all these games?" And they said, "We'll send in some chocolate brownies if they have a game." feeling people's bottoms and guess whose bottom this is probably now that wouldn't be allowed but uh yeah everyone said oh let's go for the chocolate brownies so it was a good lot of comments in other later but it was fun you know it was great fun uh, it's been in pantomime with Anne Hegarty and she was just in there so we were having a laugh about it and talking about it and uh it's a bit like an extended family of the people who have been in it's like oh you were in yeah which year were you yeah so it's a bit like a family if you've been in there but see what 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 also annoys me is you do people do go in there. Let's be honest, as a as kind of a shop window as well for themselves, and it's, course, it's yeah. well it's well publicised the amount of great things that you did to keep morale up and keep people motivated. You know, struggling to go through. I mean, uh, Harry Redknapp, who, who's just won King of the Jungle, he thought that it was a, a set where he was going to get pizzas and all these things and cut off and breaks and whatever, realising that that's not the case. Did you watch every episode when you come out to kind of gauge what they'd shown of you? Did you watch every one? Or were you just told that things weren't shown? Or did you did you physically watch things yourself to see what was included and what wasn't? I didn't watch any of them when I came out. Really? Uh, I was just too busy, uh, too busy doing stuff. I... You know, you sort of probably got them somewhere on DVD. I mean, people record them for you, but, you know, it's like Saturday Superstore. I mean, I think I've got them all somewhere on VHS, but, you know, I, I don't sort of sit down and watch them all. You think maybe someday you will for a laugh. I don't know, but, um, yeah, you don't come out and watch them all. It's like you don't, you don't listen back to your radio show. You know, you just sort of move on. You can't sit there, you know thinking about yesterday's supper, you get on with the next supper, you know. Um, would, you, would you ever consider, 
I mean, by the way, where did you come in on the celebrity? Where, where did you hen- end up coming out? Was it? Was it? Oh, they they, they kicked me out early. Really? But the, but the weird thing was, the weird thing was that my my girlfriend at the time who came over, yes, um, they said to her, you know, because you have to. So I said, they said, oh, don't worry, my mic's not not uh, posted out now. You're you're fine. And um, and then they changed it. Uh, I won't tell you why, but they they cosmetically changed it, and. Um, I found that that after because another friend of mine went to be interviewed the following year, and they didn't know this guy from a band was a very good friend of mine. Right. And he came out and he said, "I've got something to tell you." He said, "They they swizzled you last year." I said, "Yeah, I know they did, but it's you know as I say, it's, it's not the end of the world." Uh, he said, "Yeah, but they told me that because of this." We go. I said, "Yeah, I know, I know, but that's fine. You know, not not a problem." Would you go back in? Uh, yeah, I mean, if somebody you mean if somebody said, "Would you like a free flight to Australia and stay in a six-star Versace hotel and have a terrific holiday uh, in in uh, in the rainforest?" Will I go back in? And and you're going to pay me a lot of money? Yes. Um, we've got loads of questions coming in here. Uh, of course, there's other things that I need to speak to you about in just a second. Um, now, this is coming from Mark. Now, Mark's listening to you in South End on Sea. Do you think right. radio is now uh, watered down? I think it's too much radio. Um, initially, uh, the Independent Broadcasting Authority, I guess Ofcom now, uh, said there'd be 30 commercial stations. What they should have done is what they did in Germany, is, is, is have you know 10 or 12 big regional areas, all manageable, all sustainable, um, so you'd have here commercial stations for southeast England, for the old Wessex area, southwest England, east Midlands, west Midlands, uh, northwest, northeast, stuff like that. So they're big, sustainable areas. So they work for artists and and the songwriters and publishers getting their stuff promoted because they're going to a big area. So you could have, like the states, a breakout if you get three or four areas playing your record. You can then put pressure on the others to play it as well. So you're not relying on a radio two. Every artist now is relying on radio two. You go on BBC local radio. They'll have you on and you play, and it's great. BBC local radio is terrific. But in terms of promoting you and making you an artist, you go on, they play your song, you talk, and then you go away, and they probably won't play it again. Commercial radio doesn't really do interviews by and large with artists, you know, and they may play your records. So often it's down to Radio 2. <clears throat> radio 2, about a few days ago, um, made this announcement that they're going to phase out 50s, 60s, and 70s music. Uh-huh. And going back to Blood on the Tracks Radio 1, uh-huh. if you're going to do it, don't make the announcement. Oh. Just do it very quietly and very slowly. Don't stand on a public platform and say you're going to do it. That's daft. But anyway, oh. so, so yeah, I mean, now artists, if, they, if you don't get on Radio 2, you probably don't get a hit. You know, And I think if they'd had 10 major stations, big stations around the country, where you could have a national breakout, it would take the onus off the national stations. Uh, but I think there are too many radio stations. Uh, there are too many people on there being paid less than they were 10, 20, 30 years yes. ago. Uh, there are people on there not being paid properly, uh, but doing a very good job. Um, yeah, there are just far too many radio stations. But can you, can, you can answer this question. So you've got some, something like Radio 2, uh, the UK's most listened to station at the moment, Radio 2. Why would you... Why would you kind of, or why would somebody come up with the idea, which is exactly as you said happened with Radio 1, to come onto the airwaves and announce that they're going to chop off, you know, decades of music? 
surely that's the reason why people are listening to Radio 2, surely? Uh, well, I would think so, yeah. I can't reason for somebody else or come up with somebody else's no. way of thinking. I, no. I found it rather baffling. Um, but it's it's interesting. I mean, Radio 2, uh, Radio 1, they are, if you, if you don't get whichever, you know, wherever you're pitching your song, if you're a writer, you're an artist, you're an act, um, you know, you want to get on there. So I, I find that... You know, in some ways, it's narrow casting rather than old-fashioned broadcasting. Because, I mean, if you look back, and it's not looking back with with rose-tinted glasses, but yeah. if you look at a chart, you might have Iron Maiden, you might have Orville the Duck, you might have the Jam, uh, New Romantics, Reggae, you know, a bit of everything that people were buying. You know, if you look back, if you said to somebody in 1967, they'd say, oh, yeah, the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Summer of Love, Hippies, you know, what are the big selling records? Engelbert Humperdinck and Tom Jones. You know, so th- there was room for everybody. Ken Dodd. You know, th- th- there's room for everybody in all types of music. But I feel that they 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 whittled it down to a certain production sound. Yeah. So there are a lot of people. I, I did a TV series a couple of years ago, um, which is like an X Factor yeah. for uh, songwriters, and we invited songs to come in. We had 800 songs. The industry, Performing Rights Society, British Academy, said, wow, this is a really fantastic standard of songs. We whittled it down to 30, then down to 12, and I got major producers like Mike Stock to produce some of them, and we did it. And, you know, in talking to some of those songwriters, you know, somebody said, you know, one of the guys, he said, well, what do I do? You know, you can't be a full-time songwriter because it's difficult. I live in Scarborough. If I come to London for the weekend with my wife, it's going to be 500 quid. I can't afford 500 quid. And if I come to London with my songs, where do I go? It used to be you went to Denmark Street, Tim Pan Alley, packed with publishers. That's what people like Paul Simon did when he came over here, walked up and down the street, trying to sell Sound of Silence and Homeward Bound. And everybody said, nah, mate, not what's happening, sorry. And then eventually, eventually, last knockings, he got a deal with April Music. But, but at least you could go there. Bowie camped out in the street in, in his van. Uh, to try and get a deal. Um, Mark Boland did, yeah. you know, um, Elton John worked there as a tea boy. But you knew where to go. You knew where to go. You knew who to see. You knew where to hang out. Now, if somebody comes to London, where do they go? Where do they hang out? Where do they go and find publishers uh, who do nothing but deal in big catalogs? It's very, very difficult. So I wanted to make a go-to place uh, on the TV. And I said to various people in Denmark Street, could we have a room? We could man it with somebody so when somebody comes to london you can say hey look use the laptop this is where all the publishers are um are you looking for people to write with here a list of people looking for people to write with and 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 actually make it work make the industry work because along with america we're the best songwriters in the world Uh, no question about that but we've got a lot of great songwriters out there who don't have anywhere to go well see the other thing as well I mean, I'll, I'll ask you this question. When was the last time you actually listened in as a punter to Radio 1? When was the last time you listened in? Well, I don't really listen to Radio 1. Um, I, I might listen to a bit of Radio 2. Um, I, I dabble around, listen to a bit of talk sport as well, because sometimes if you're living music, I mean, I'm playing it every day. Yes. I'm writing it a lot of days as well. Yes. I'm writing about it. Yes. I'm writing songs. I listen to it. And you've got a lot of the stuff in your head. I mean... I do like listening to stations where I might find something new yes. and say, oh, what's that? Because that's, that's a delight. But I, I do twiddle around a bit 
Uh, there's nothing I particularly home in on the whole time. But see, the, the, the reason I ask you when the last time is you listening to it is because in, in my mentality, in my head, Radio 1 should be Radio 1, the numero uno, so you have your Motown, your Northern Soul, you have your Pop, you have your up-to-date stuff, all slammed onto Radio 1, because that is the, that's kind of the top of the tower, um, whereas now it's been kind of uh, segmented down to a certain age group, um, which have then been forced to move to Radio 2. Now Radio 2, they're going to chop half of those, those music uh, tracks away, uh, where do they end up going? So the point I'm trying to make there, Mike, is Radio 1 should be people like yourself, Steve Wright, or with different jobs, not bunged into Radio 2, 4, 5, or whatever station it is. Well, no, because the perception is things move on, and you, you know, you're not going to be on Radio 1 now because that's the aimed at the younger market. Um, but, but you're right in terms of, I mean, when we were there, we played music from everything, all era. Everything. You know, it, it didn't matter what the era was. If the music's good, that's the criterion, surely. It's like presenters, yeah. you know. They're always talking about getting a balance of presenters. Well, just get the best presenters, you know. Just get the best songs, play the best songs. We know if you've got good ears, you know what songs are good. You know, you can listen to something and go, that's great. It might not be a hit, but it's a great song. It's worthy of being played on the radio. Yeah, but it is like, I mean, I've got people telling me now, you know, that... that, that they left Radio 1 after the likes of yourself went and Bruno Brooks and got, no times have to move on. Uh, but I think we're all of the same agreement. Keep your best presenters in one place. Surely, surely somewhere like Radio 2 would be the kind of station for, you know, the younger audience. But what it's kind of done is saying, well, thanks very much for your time, presenters. Thanks very much time for you, listeners. Uh, we're just going to break you all up now because we just feel that's what we're going to do now. All the best. So all your loyal people that have followed you around different stations, you could still be in the same place and accommodate everybody. Yeah, well, we had that conversation a little bit a few weeks ago. Up yeah. there, and I was talking to somebody, and they said it seems a pity that you know the BBC, you know, backed you, brought you up, paid for you, basically, yes. uh, raised you, yes. um, and then let you go. That, that that's madness. Why would you do that? But you know, again, you can't. People always like to, you know, make a name for themselves or make a clean sweep or something like that. I, I don't know, but uh, I don't think they're doing uh, music industry disservice, uh, any good service. And I think, you know, the music industry itself is doing itself a disservice because it didn't see uh, the new technology coming. It didn't get into position quickly no, enough no. Uh, and then let it run away. And I, I said to quite a few artists, and some do it, and they're complaining about how little they get. Uh, you know, Cliff was saying a few weeks ago, he said he went to his manager's office, a pile of paper, and Cliff said, what's that? He said, your royalties. And Cliff said, wow. He said, don't worry, mate, it's like spinach. It'll boil down to nothing, you know, because, <laughs> you know, on streaming, you get point yeah. naught, naught, naught. It's nothing. It's nothing I mean, my that. songs, I've had, a, I've had a million hits. Yes. Nowhere near as many as a lot of people on YouTube. I don't get a penny. Now, if I got 10 pence for each one, oh. I have 100 grand in my pocket. Wow. You know, um... But, you know, YouTube don't pay anything, and uh, a lot of these people don't pay anything. So it's very, very difficult now uh, to earn money for a songwriter. And, you know, I think that's where the industry lost out, didn't get itself into position. Um, so now, you know, songwriters not earning the money they used to. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very difficult now. It's, it's, uh, the industry's changed and, and rather shot itself in the foot. Well, you know... I would never, never take take this from anybody else but yourself. If if you 
they handed you the keys to radio tomorrow. I mean, I know you can't go into full details because we'd be here till four in the morning. But if somebody said, Mike Reed, here's the keys to radio tomorrow, um, you know, to, to, you know, we're now going to work by what you decide. What what would you do to kind of bring radio back into some kind of safety net without it kind of just blowing out all over the Mediterranean? With all these different... Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're obviously saying one station. You say the keys to radio, but yeah. of course radio now is, yeah. is 300 stations. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I would say just before that, just touching slightly again on, on the songs, yeah. I would say to songwriters what some of them do is to, because they complain about streaming but don't know anything about it, yeah. is damn the stream. Now, Eddie Grant, if you want Eddie's music or the Equals music, you've got to go to his website. You know, uh, I think Elio Pace is going to start doing the same thing. If you want the music, you've got to come and buy it. You know, damn the stream. Uh, so people can't actually go and get it. You know, go to the website, either the record company or to the artist, and you have to buy it for proper money, you know, reasonable, from there. I think if every artist did that, you know, it would make an awful lot of sense. It would boost the industry a lot more. Yeah. And then, um, and then yes, you could play broader stuff. I mean, you were saying keys to radio, uh, keys to what? One station, six different stations. It's a very difficult one to answer that. Well, it's just, it's just, you know, if you got the keys tomorrow, okay, let's say they could, uh, you know, drop you inside the BBC to run it, kind of a Matthew Bannister type thing. Would, would there be changes you would make immediately? Um, exactly what we just spoke about Radio 2 saying they're going to drop the 60s and 70s stuff would you step in and say that's not going to happen because it's a popular station and you're now going to blow away 8 or 9 million listeners that are now going to go to commercial radio because you're not playing what they're tuning in for that's what I mean uh, I, th- I think it's, it's a bit like a general going into battle isn't it first yeah. of all you'd have to sit down uh, w- w- with the maps and, and you'd have a look and uh, at everything at, at the costings uh, what it cost, how much money was being spent, the budget for each station, uh, what they were doing, what they were not doing, what the plan was, how many people were there, were there too many people working there, yeah. you know, could be more streamlined, you know, do you need 12 people working on a program, you know, or is radio just, should it be just one person? So I think that before making a rash decision, I think any businessman would sit down and say, okay, let's have a look at it, you know, right. what are we playing, what should we be playing, how could we get more music into one station without it being too much of a patchwork quilt. I mean, that's in a way that's what Radio Six does. That's a bit of a an eclectic patchwork quilt that yeah. plays a lot of different music that maybe you're not expecting. And that was nearly chopped at one point, but the listeners said, "No, no, no we want it saved." Um, but they have got. I mean, they've got a variety of stations now. I mean, they've got. It used to be like Radio One, Radio Two, and now suddenly they've got Radio Five, Radio Six. You know. Seven, eight. I mean, there are so many, <laughs> yeah. so many stations, and so many stations around the country. You'd think that people would be able to play more varied stuff, but I bet you hear um, the same songs driving around the country. If a new single comes out by uh, by Ollie Mills or somebody, you know, everyone will probably be playing it. And when we did the Guinness books, you know, I, I was in the British magazine uh, section logging everything in a graph. We'd have a computer. So I was logging everything. And in the back of the music press at the time, it had, and I remember one particularly, and it, it said, the, the top 20 plays this week. And I think Runaway Del Shannon was at number one, mm-hmm. and it had had 12 plays. If you, tw- if you stayed up all night and twiddled the dial every which way, you could just about hear it played 12 times. Therefore, you probably heard it once or twice. Yes. Probably rushed to the shopkeeper and said, 
take my money. I've heard this song on the radio and I want to hear it again. And I can't hear it again unless I buy it from you or I'm very lucky and I happen to catch it on the radio again. Yeah. So uh, I think that's where people wanted to buy physical product to listen to because they couldn't hear it. Now, fast forward to, I remember Robbie Williams, She's the One coming out. And I heard it. I thought, wow, that was a great track. It's very Beatlesque. I thought, I'm going to buy that. And I was busy. And by the end of the week, I'd heard it so much I didn't buy it because you get blanket plays and the pluggers go back to the record company and say, hey, I've got 300 plays this week. I'm not sure that's a good thing. No. Because it, it's a bit overkill because then you don't need to buy it. Well, why when it's being played everywhere? Well, that's it. Yeah, I mean, and now you could just stream everything. And the other crazy thing is, you know, when we going back to that TV series, yes. um, <clears throat> I had Lamont Dozier on it, you know, from Holland, Dozier, yes. Holland. Yes. And uh, we, he said, I'd love to, to work with you on it. It's great. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, talking about songs and stuff like that, it, it's, it's very, very, I forgot what I was going to say. I was going to say something about him, and I waylaid myself, and I forgot what it, what we were talking about just before that. We were talking about um, the fact of uh, radio before, and we were talking about uh, streaming music and being played regularly. So we were talking about Runaway Del Shannon and what they were. Yeah, the fact that there's something I was going to say um, that um, that he said that was very poignant. I forgot, it may come back to me. It'll come um, back to me. But it was, we're, just, we're just steamrolling along pretty fast. So, uh, yeah, it was something about this, the songwriting thing that, that he'd said, which, uh, which sort of made a lot of sense. But... Uh, I'll think of it come well, back. Well, you're, you're, you're kind of saying in a certain way, if, if there's music that needs to be promoted, it needs to maybe be channeled in and played a couple of three times. I remember, um, I think it was on Johnny Walker's show on Radio 2 a few years ago, Harry's Bar, and I'm trying to think who, who had a hit with that. Um, I'm going to have to find that out. Uh, but Johnny Walker played, played this track on his show, Gordon Askill. That's the one, Gordon Askill. And he played right, it on yeah, his yeah. drive show a couple of times only. And people went ballistic to get this particular track. Then it was That's released. Right. Whereas now, it would probably be played on every network that he's going. So like you said, why go and buy it when it, you can literally click from click to click and probably hear it? Yeah, you, yeah it, it's overkill. Yeah. I remember what I was going to say. Um, it was uh, that I wanted a clip because he was on, on the series with me. I wanted a clip of the four tops, reach out, I'll be there. Yeah, And, when, and it's on YouTube, you know, and you, I could watch it. A hundred times a night, if I wanted to do every night free. Yeah, yeah. But when I wanted it to play forty seconds on the TV, it was something like two and a half thousand pounds. Wow! So, Wait a minute. I said two and a half thousand. Yeah. I said we're going to show it once on TV. Two and a half thousand pounds. I said I can watch it free. I could get up in the morning and watch it hundreds of times during the day, every day. And they said, yeah. yeah. I said so everyone can watch it free. I want to play it on TV, and you're going to charge me two and a half thousand pounds. To me, that doesn't make sense. And surely, surely you could get around playing that clip like TV stations do now with the YouTube logo on, on the TV. With their logo on, with YouTube actually on there, you know, that they do now with some clips, they show stuff that's come directly from YouTube. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really get, well, not angry, but you just get exasperated when, if I want to show somebody, somebody says, oh, can I hear that song of yours? I say, yes, on YouTube. And I've got to go through two ads to get to my own song. I'm not being paid for my own song being no, on there no, not, no. And, and all the hits on it, but I'm also having to wade through two ads that YouTube are making money on yes. because my songs had a load of hits, so they're putting ads on the top of it. 
I don't get paid for any of it for the ads or the song. That is, so that's, that's ridiculous. Wrong. That's so so in protest. I wouldn't have my music on there. Probably something like SoundCloud. Um, which would probably be about an area to go to for that particular purpose. Yeah. Um, it's 23 minutes to 11 o'clock, so much to cram in. Mike, read my special guest. Line. Mike, I want to talk briefly about your love of tennis. Now, I'm a tennis fan. You like to play tennis. Are you still playing tennis? And why do you like tennis? Yeah, I played yesterday. Um, I played since I was a kid. We had a court when I was a kid, and I used to go and knock around and uh, <coughs> play the school. It's, I mean, I love sport anyway. I always played a lot of football as a kid and cricket. Uh, but tennis is just something I've kept playing. Uh, good social game. You can play at any level, really. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you can play with people much better than you. I mean, I've been lucky and played with some world-class players. Uh, and you come off court and people say, wow, you, you've really held your own with, like, you know, Steffi Graf and the Bratilova. And you go, no, 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 no. If they want to up a gear or two or three or 17 gears, they can. But if you're a reasonable club player, you can have a good hit with them. I could not play tennis in my life. So what do you what do you think, of course, being a tennis fan and somebody who plays it, what did you think about the uh, the win for Andy Murray when he finally won Wimbledon? How did you feel about that? Brilliant. Brilliant, because we were so used to not winning. Yes. Uh, and it was great. Yeah, I mean, absolutely fantastic moment. Uh, you know, there are always... <clears throat> Always people that will be disparaging, whatever the situation. Yes. You know, and I have some people say, oh, well, you know, uh, he's not really English, we can't claim it. Like Greg Rosetsky, you know, oh, yeah, he's yeah. really Canadian, yeah, we can't yeah. claim it. Yeah. Oh, shut up. Just enjoy the tennis. Yeah, he's a good player, you know, whatever the situation. Uh, and we do have a lot of good players around. I mean, it, it depends um, when you come through. I mean, for Andy Murray, yeah. you know, he's in the era of, of Nadal and Federer. Yeah, yeah. So that means... You've got to fight, even though people often say, oh, so-and-so's in the easier half of the draw. Well, you know, you ain't going to win because uh, you, you've got to beat Federer on the down at some point. You might be in the easier half of the draw, but at some point you've got to beat one of those guys to win the final. You've got to beat everybody to win the final. So it's, it's difficult. And it's not like a team game. It, it's a very mental situation, I think, for solo players. You're traveling the world. It's, it's a very lonely thing. I mean, I... A lot of players I speak to, they said when they were kids, they'd be traveling the world, holed up in terrible hotels, you know, playing on satellite tours, you know, no friends, miles from home at a young age, uh, trying to battle their way up the ratings. And it's very difficult. You get out into that arena, that cauldron, and there are thousands of people looking at you. And unlike football or cricket, you haven't got any mates to turn to to have a laugh with. You know, there's no respite from that. It's you. Sometimes in 1890, up to 100 degrees, uh, battling it out there against some of the best in the world. And mentally, I think people sometimes find that difficult to cope with. That's why at any level, you know, people often, they could watch Murray getting, uh, winning a set 6-1 and losing a net 6 How did he do that? How could he win 1-6-1 and lose 1-6-1? Yeah, yeah. uh, but it's, it's mental. It, it's, it's your mental attitude. It's not just about your physical fitness, which is now much, much higher than it ever was for tennis players. Phenomenal fitness. Um, but it's about your stroke play, your canniness, your guile, um, how robust you are, whether you can last the course, you know, and, and, and mental. You know, it's whether you believe you can beat the person at the other end or whether you believe they can beat you. It's, it's, it's very tricky for a solo person. So we're going to talk about your radio station in just a second. Uh, before we do, I need to ask you, who is your favourite tennis player of all time then? Who would you up for? 
I'm not sure I have a favourite tennis player. I mean, I've played with a lot of them and um, I've played with a little group of, of Barami, Leconte and the Stasi, which is wow. always great fun. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, for me, the thrill has been playing with a lot of these guys, you know, not because of your talent, but because of what you do. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure whether I have a favourite tennis player. They were trying to tee up something for this summer with um, an evening with Connors and McEnroe. I don't know whether they will. They keep changing the dates. They've asked me to, uh, to to sort of compare that and chat with them, do the interviews. But um, they, they keep changing it all around. So whether they'll actually do it or not, I don't know. But um, well, I think uh, I think uh, yeah. well, I think Roger Federer is for me because I think he's a gentleman at the game. However, I've got, I've got to go with Andy Murray, of course, because of what he's achieved. But uh, when we lose people like uh, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, and Murray finally, you know, hangs up his racket, I think it's going to be a loss to the tennis world to lose these people. Um, there's one or two people now, uh, before we talk about your radio station, which I have to say, guys and girls, is very cool. I was listening to Mike on it this morning on his breakfast show, uh, but we'll come to that in a second. There's one or two people I'd like you to say hello to on the show tonight. Uh, do you remember a band called Bizarre Inc.? I know the name, yeah. I couldn't tell you the song, but I remember the name, yeah. They had a hit with I'm Going to Get Your Baby. In fact, if we can do this live, if I just piece a little bit of this into you, you'll understand in just a second. Let's play this uh, for Mike Reed. Have a listen to this, you all know. Yeah. I'll jump forward on the track. Well, that's Bizarre Inc., Mr. Mike Reed. Yes. And the lead singer of that is... A roadshow from, or um, there was a single out from Smeaton's Tower in Plymouth, down on the uh, on the hoe there. We did a program from Drake's Island and one from Smeaton's Tower. Remember it well? Well, yeah. I mean, these, these are fantastic places. Just shows you where 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 we are. Can you also say a big hello to Laura for me? The Laura. Yeah, Laura's also tuned in, listening to you. Laura, delighted you're there. Wonderful. At least we've got some people there, which is brilliant. Oh, we've got loads of people. We've got, I haven't got time for many more because I need to ask you about your radio. Uh, can you also say hello to Maxine and Ray? They're listening to you in Brown Hills in the West Midlands. Ah, uh, Brown Hills, eh? Yeah, <laughs> Maxine <laughs> and Ray. Good that's, my, that's my go-to Midlands accent. I'll do, you know. And it's like, uh, you know, it's like Dave Hill always says, maybe you should join the band. You, you, just speak, you can speak the, uh, you speak Slade. You can join the band. Uh, you also need to. This is a, this is an important one. Can you say hello to Holly Johnson? 
Of course. I, I saw Holly last probably a couple of years ago in uh, the street. I'd just come from doing an interview, I think, at the 100 Club and bumped into Holly. And he said, hey, he said, let's, let's do a selfie uh, for, for social media. So we did. Uh, that was the, I think that was the, the last time I saw him. So, yeah, great. It was the same one with, with, with the Franks. I remember doing the voiceover for the first album. And um, I still play uh, a lot on the radio. Two Tribes, I still think, is just uh, the, the power behind that is phenomenal. And my other favorite Frankish track is Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, which I love. Uh, so those are two tracks I really enjoy playing. The, the power of those is phenomenal. Now, there's somebody else, of course, who you said that you were on a TV program with quite a long time ago, Mike Holloway, uh, who's one of the Second yes. City Radio presenters. Would you like to give him a name check and say hello? Absolutely lovely, Mike. Yes, we did. Um, the the uh, producer, director there was a guy called Roger Price. And Roger came to our radio station, uh, Steve Wright and myself, and we wrote some stuff. Uh, we did it live on the radio, wrote some stuff for the TV show, uh, Pauline's Quirks. Yes. Pauline's Quirks, you must be joking. And, and the Tomorrow People, of course, that Mike was in. And the, the sort of gang of them, there was Pauline Quirk, uh, there was Elvis Payne, I remember. And we did some, uh, we did some stuff, and Flintlock were always, you know, thereabouts doing stuff down at Thames TV. And, um, yeah, we, we went on there and we were invited on as guests. Uh, so that was, that was great fun. And, uh, yeah, I remember, uh, Flintlock did some good stuff. Sea of Flames, that uh, was a good track. Dawn was a good track. I remember those. Dawn. And their, and their old manager, Newton Wills, who made the odd record himself. Very good. Yeah. But, so, yeah, good days, good fun. Right, can you say hello to Ruby and John Logan? Ruby and John Logan, I think I did, but uh, they're so good, we've named them twice. They're in they're in a place called Barmouth, if you've heard of that, in Wales. Right, yeah. Oh, Wales, I love. Uh, again, coming from a road show in Liverpool, we were doing Tenby, and everyone else, Smiley and the crew, went out, down the motorway, and back in again. And I said, you know, I'm going to put the roof down. I take the whole day. I'm just going to, without a map, wriggle all the way down through Wales. And it was wonderful. Absolutely loved it. She's been a big fan of yours for a long time. Now, uh, it's 13 minutes to 11. Uh, we've so, so much we've spoken about tonight, but I need to talk to you briefly now about um, the fact that you've launched this brand new radio station. Uh, and I can tell everybody that the radio station is called United DJs. Why have you now gone down this route? Well, quite a few of us were talking from former Radio 1, Capital and Luxembourg jocks. Uh, and, you know, and we said a lot of people now are doing a job they love in a way that they don't because of so many constraints with music. You're told what to play, told what to say, uh, often run by suits. You say, that's the playlist. You know, and I remember a lot of people saying, well, it's the same every week. And if I touch a record or put something else in there, have a go at me. And you think that's uh, really not a very good way of doing it because... You need the passion. You need you need to sound passionate on air, you know, genuinely passionate about the music, and to be able to say, you know, as I do in the morning, I'll, I'll play something. I think, oh, I know it'll go really well after this. You know, same key, same tempo, just fit in perfectly. Uh, and then you go, oh, I know what I'll play. I know what I'll play, and you get excited about it. I think you can hear that passion coming through yes. in, in any walk of life, whatever you're doing. If somebody's passionate about something, you can feel it. You can sense it, and. And it, it makes you engage more, I think. So, yeah, so we're playing music. I mean, you still put down parameters, you know, because you don't want to go crazy. I'm not going to play 
you know, Interstellar Overdrive by Pink Floyd at eight o'clock in the morning, because it wouldn't be right. But so you, you you get your own, you put your own parameters down, I think, and and make it work for the station. But you you still have an awful lot of freedom. So how can people? Because obviously you do a breakfast show uh, Monday to Friday, um, and I will I will allow. See, I'm a nice guy. I'm, I'm the gift that always gives. Uh, Mike's on from seven till nine every weekday morning. I will allow you on this station to listen in from seven to eight. <laughs> how do they get hold of you? How do they, how can they tune in? Well, we're online. You, the, the best way is go to the website. Yes. Uh, United DJs Radio. Go to the website and. Um, uh, there we'll tell you how to download the app so you can take us with you wherever you go. We have our own app. Um, I think we're going to be on TuneIn as well. We're on different DAB areas like Solon, Glasgow, Norwich, adding more all the time. Um, I think you can get us into Alexa as well. So, uh, But the best the best thing is the web, web navigating is go to the website uh, and check that out because you can, you can listen by there anyway and, and get the app. But, uh, yeah, we seem to be growing extraordinary all the time because it is a bit of a wing and a prayer you know with no, no great bucket loads of dosh behind us same like here that. same so here same a, here there's no there's no there's no bucket of cash here either we're all doing it on a wing and a prayer that's you know but if you've got a passion for it I suppose Mike you're going to do it well this is it yes it's in a, in a way I guess it's a sort of new pirate radio it's not pirate but it, it's just people saying you know this is the way radio should be done and I think the listeners agreeing but he's trying to get them uh, more quickly than, than they do. People go, oh, yeah, I found you. Oh, yeah, I found you. So, yeah, well, find us more quickly, you know. Well, this is what we do. I mean, we're, we're quite open with the audience here. We, we, we kind of treat, you know, the audience is part of the family on this station. I know I say all the presenters that work on here, whether it's uh, Sam Kane to Gary Bushell, they all do their shows for... Uh, no money at all. They just come on. They've got a passion to do it. It keeps their profiles alive and, of course, allows them to, you know, there's nobody here with a stick telling them what they can and can't play. They kind of know what they can and can't play. Yeah, and, and everyone's different. You know, you probably, every station has a common denominator and some sort yeah. of sound. Uh, but within that, you know, and people have their favourites as well. Within that, the, the programmes will vary according to the presenter. But that, that's good. I mean, that's life. That's, that's how it should be, really. And plus, you, plus you can do it from uh, you know different parts of the country. That I mean, to check into studios and all that, which is good. Uh, I need you to mention somebody who's listening to you now in Canada, and his name is Ron. Okay, Canada, Ron. Uh, hi to you. Do you know I've been a lot of places around the world. Canada is somewhere I've never been. Uh, I'd, I'd love to go at some point. I've never been to Canada. Well, I have to say, Mike. Um, I'm coming to the end of my live show. I've got nine minutes left. So I've got to say, I'm literally gobsmacked that you agreed to come onto this program. And you're everything that I knew you would be. Fantastic presenter. You've had a great chat with us tonight, and it's, you've been very warm and loving, which I knew you'd be like that anyway. Um, and, of course, I wish you, you know, with microphone, any microphone in the country deserves your lips around it. <laughs> that sounds wrong, doesn't it? That's an wrong. image for you. Yeah. Um, but you, you are, in my opinion, and I own this station, in the opinion of my presenters, in the opinion of our listeners, you are Radio Gold and always will be, Mr. Mike Reed. Well, in which case, you are now appointed head of all British radio. No, I don't want that. don't want that. No, no. No, I want you, I want you to be, because then you'll hire me. No, you, you, listen, you're welcome. Uh, now, 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 before I go, I said this to Cheryl Baker last week. 
if you ever fancy having a bit of a kick around on here, we can get you on. You can come up. Uh, listen, I'm not even going to go there because it's you, you won't. You, I, I can't because I'm all flustered now. Because you are to have Mike Reed do a show on here would be like, I mean, like it would be like sorting Brexit out. You know, just get let's get to the end of that. It would be amazing, Mike. But the offer's always there if you ever fancy doing a show on here. Uh, That's very kind. That's very kind. I mean, I'm doing I'm doing six a week at the moment, so yeah. it's probably enough for the moment but i really really appreciate your offer it's very kind you're very welcome and you can come on and play what you like well listen listen in the future we'll even take a pre-record off you how's that we'll just say